What should separate me from your love? What should separate me from your love? Adonai, you're my God. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you this afternoon. We thank you so much, Father, for calling us and for adopting us as your children. And now as we turn to your word, Father, would you please bless our hearing and our understanding. We thank you for every word that you have given us. And I ask you to bless my words, Father, that they bring you joy and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon text this afternoon is from the book of Romans. That's the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome. Romans chapter 5 and verses 18 to 21. And please stand as we listen to the word of God. Romans 5, 18 to 21. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness the free, gift of, uh, the free gift of grace came to all men, resulting in justification and life. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God, and you may be seated. At the beginning of this letter, Paul says, I am not ashamed of my gospel. And the gospel he has in mind, the gospel he speaks of, is indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the good news of God's grace towards us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so grace is a key word of this gospel. In this passage, the apostle speaks of the free gift of grace and the abundance of grace. He says that the results of this grace are justification and life, and that grace reigns through Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter in his first letter calls God the God of grace, showing that grace is a mark of God's character and a mark of his relationship to us. And the Apostle John affirms that grace came by Jesus Christ, who was full of grace, and that those who recognize the glory of Jesus of Nazareth, being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, those who, who recognize the glory of Jesus received the fullness of grace from him. For the apostles and for the early church, the grace of God was such an important part of the gospel 
that they began to wish each other the grace of God. Grace to you is the common beginning of the letters of the New Testament. And this was something entirely new in the Bible. Before the New Testament, in the Old Testament, nobody ever wished anybody else the grace of God. But for the young Christians, for the new Christians, the grace of God is such an important word that when they met and when they sent letters to each other, they said, I wish you the grace of God. Of course, there's grace of God also in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is most of all about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and the one writer who is the champion of God's grace is the Apostle Paul. His letters, which make up a good part of the New Testament, his letters are all about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So what is the grace of God? It is God's loving kindness towards us human beings. The grace of God is something active. It is not just an attitude. It's not just God's thinking about us. It is God's work in the lives of human beings, in your life and in my life. The grace of God is God's treating us kindly, doing us good, dealing with us favorably. And this idea of God's grace rests on three fundamental ideas, three pillars. The first pillar, the grace of God comes from above. Grace is something that comes from above. Grace exists only when there is a superior and an inferior being. When there's a ruler and a subject. The lower person can ask the superior for grace, but the superior is by no means under obligation to give it. A king or a president of a country can give grace towards one or many of his subjects, but he's not forced to do it. His subjects can honor him, can obey him, they can even love him, but his citizens cannot give grace to the king. They cannot give grace to the president. It only works top down. And in the same way, God can give you grace, but you cannot give God grace. You can bless him, but you cannot give him grace. The Bible says that men and women and even entire people found grace in the eyes of the Lord but the Bible never says that God found grace in the eyes of human beings. It doesn't work from the bottom up. And so that implies that to speak of the grace of God to you makes sense only if you admit that God is your Lord, that he is so much more powerful and wiser and his authority is so much greater than yours that you can only adore him and worship him. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up, says the letter of James. God's grace is his lifting up people who humble themselves before him. And brothers and sisters, such humility does not come to us naturally. Adam and Eve 
the first human beings rebelled against God's authority instead of humbly obeying to him. They did not wish his grace. They wanted to speak to him eye to eye, just like modern man today wants to speak to God eye to eye instead of acknowledging the Lord's superiority over him. You know, in one of the songs we just sang, it said, all creation proclaims the power and the glory of God. Our climate proclaims the power and the glory of God. And now we recognize there are some difficulties with our climate. And so what do we do? We can fix it. We have it all under control because we are as powerful as God. That's not what we ought to do. We ought to accept and acknowledge the superiority of God and ask him to help us fix the climate problems. If you want to enjoy the grace of God, you must humble yourself. Doesn't work otherwise. You can beg the Lord for grace, but he's under no obligation to give it to you. Only if you humble yourself, he will lift you up. Second pillar, grace is a free gift. You cannot purchase God's grace for money. You cannot give anything back in kind for God's grace. God gives it to whom he wants, and he doesn't ask anything back. It is a gift. And as with all gifts, the gift of grace is given in order to establish a relationship. You know, we correctly say gifts maintain friendship. Gifts support friendship. If a young man courts a young woman and he wants to build a relationship, what does he do? He gives her gifts, rings, flowers, what have you. And it's the same here. God gives you the gift of grace so that you can enter into a loving relationship with him. Without his grace, that's impossible. You cannot have a loving relationship with God because you were born a sinner. And that means an enemy of God and a rebel against him. And without his grace, you remain in the state of sin forever until you die and beyond. To speak about God's grace towards you, you have to acknowledge that it is a free gift. And it is not natural to us to acknowledge that because we want to decide for ourselves with whom and for what reason we enter into relationships. We don't like gifts. We like to give and take. That's what we do. I give the baker my money and he gives me some of his bread and I take it. And this is how we like to deal with people every day. Because give and take allows us what? Allows us to end the relationship whenever we want. I take the baker's bread, I leave the store, and I'm done with him. I never go back to him. Or maybe if I feel like it, I'll go back to him tomorrow. But I'm in control. That's the meaning of give and take. 
Give and take puts us on the same level with the person we deal with, allows us to control the relationship. And that's part of the natural pride you and I were born with. But it is not so with the grace of God. The grace of God, you can receive it, receive it, receive it, receive it, but you have nothing to give back to God. Acknowledging the grace of God kills our pride because it forces us to acknowledge that God gives it to us freely and we have nothing to give back. It's not reciprocal. And therefore, we can neither cause God to give it to us, nor can we even stop him from doing it. Some people will tell you that you can make deals with God in the same way I make deals with my baker. The idea is, Lord, I will pray to you every day, and then you will give me your grace. But it doesn't work that way. God does not make such deals. Some people will tell you that God needs your praise because he cannot praise himself. And so the idea is, God, I give you praise every day and you give me your grace. No, it doesn't work that way. Remember, God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Word of God tells us that the Son praises the Father, the Spirit praises the Father and the Son, and the Father praises the Son. And so God is all self-sufficient in praise. He doesn't need your praise. Moreover, Jesus said, if men stop praising God, the stones will cry out loud. And what will they cry? Praise the Lord who made us. Psalm 19 affirms that the heavens and the earth praise the glory of the Lord. And so if you want to enjoy the grace of God, humble yourself before him and acknowledge he alone is the giver. And you're the recipient, and that's all. And third, grace is not only a gift, it's an undeserved gift. And that's the hardest for us to swallow. If God gives you grace, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Anything that you receive because you deserve it is merit, not grace. Merit means you have something to show and you have a rightful claim to receive something in return. You've been a good student, you receive good grades. That's merit. You've worked hard and you receive a good wage. That's merit. But before God, you're a sinner. And you have nothing to show him. And you have absolutely no claim to anything from him. Remember the Lord's verdict on all mankind? And that includes God's verdict on you and me. He says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who does good. Not one. They have all become altogether unprofitable. Romans 3. If you want to deal with God based on merit, you're doomed. That's it. Merit doesn't work with God. 
God in his grace looks at us sinners and he says, nevertheless, I will deal with them kindly. That's the biggest word in the Bible. Nevertheless. Although Rodrigue is a sinner, God says, I will deal with him kindly. God does not treat us as we deserve. Because if he did, we're all going to hell. Grace is all about nevertheless. Nevertheless, I will deal kindly with them and do them good. And you know what? I know exactly that you don't like that. I know that because I don't like it. You and I, like all sinners, would much prefer to hear God say, you're a fine person. You've done well, and therefore, I will deal kindly with you and do you good. We want to earn God's favors, not receive them as undeserved gifts. Last week, I spent many hours talking to my wife about another woman. Her name was Abigail. And Ilse had to give a little speech about Abigail yesterday at the women's event. Abigail found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he made her the wife of King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man, as God himself said, David, a man after God's own heart. Now, if God made Abigail the wife of such a man, did he deal kindly with her? I think so. The question is, why? And as we talked, Ilse insisted that Abigail deserved God's grace by dealing kindly and wisely with David. When David was hiding out in the wilderness, he had run away from his king, King Saul, who sought to kill him. David had collected a couple of hundred men around him. Today, we would say David was a terrorist. And the people with him were not much different from Taliban. They were roaming around the wilderness. They were attacking foreign cities. They were taking other people's possessions. But David had helped and protected the shepherds of a certain rich man whose name was Nabal. And Nabal was Abigail's husband. And so one day, David sent ambassadors to Nabal, and he said, I think I earned a, a reward. I've helped your shepherds. I've protected your sheep. Now it's time for you to reward me because I deserve it. But Nabal refused. And thinking that he deserved better, David became furious and determined, determined to punish Nabal and kill a few of his men. Now Abigail, his wife, heard about the affair. And behind her husband's back, she got up and she brought David gifts to appease him. 
she called her husband Nabal a fool, a scoundrel with no honor. Well, now it's true that many, many authors over time have praised the lady's wisdom to go and prevent David from taking cruel revenge. And so Ilse kept telling me, but Abigail. And I said, no. And Ilse said, but Abigail. And I said, no. And she kept saying, but Abigail. Did she do the right thing? No. No, she rebelled against her husband, the husband that she swore when she got married to him to submit to his authority and to obey him. And she badmouthed her husband and said, he's a scoundrel, the man whose honor was her honor because she was his wife. And so her intention, of course, was right. But the execution of it was sinful. And brothers and sisters, isn't that what happens to us all the time? We have good intentions. We want to do the right thing. And then we do it in ways that go against the authority of God. And we sin. And sinners have no merit in the eyes of our Lord. And so it is, of course, with all men and women of the Bible who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham. Abraham was a trickster who sold his wife to protect himself. Jacob was a liar and a cheater. Joseph was personalized pride towards his brothers. Moses was a killer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Every single one of them was a sinner. Paul the apostle was an enemy of the Lord who, who hunted the, the young church like a bloodthirsty dog. And when Jesus finally met him, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Paul wanted to kill Christians. He was a, an enemy of the Lord. None of the people who found grace in the eyes of the Lord deserve the grace of God. And yet, and yet, God looked at them and said, nevertheless, I will deal kindly with them. Although Abraham was a trickster, I will make him the father of many nations. Although Moses killed an innocent man, I will make him the leader of my people. Although David murdered one of his officers and was an adulterer, I will make him the greatest king of my people. Although Paul the apostle wanted to kill Christians and persecuted the church cruelly, Jesus said, I will make you my apostle, my ambassador. Nevertheless, God says, I will deal kindly with them. And so why did Ilsa stubbornly insist that Abigail had done something right and she deserved to become David's wife? Well, because she wants to see merit where there's no merit. 
so that she, like me and like you, can see merit in her own life and think, I deserve to be treated well by the Lord. But brothers and sisters, there is only one man in the entire history of mankind, one man who deserved God's grace. And that was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ. No other deserves the grace of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's undeserved gift of grace. And the moment you begin to seek for merit, you're in a different book. You have nothing to do with Jesus Christ anymore. To receive the grace of God, you need to acknowledge that you don't deserve any kindness from God. And God says, nevertheless, I will deal kindly with you. This grace of God comes to us in two forms. There's common grace and there's special grace. The common grace of God falls on all men and women, irrespectively of, of uh, who and what they are. It, the common grace is what Jesus talks about when he says that God makes his sun rise on evil and on righteous men, and that God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. By the common grace of God, wicked people today can get vaccinated against COVID and be safe, be healthy, just like good people can get vaccinated and be healthy. By the common grace of God, all men understand that it is evil to kill other human beings. By the common grace of God, all men understand that it is not right to steal another man's property. By the common grace of God, all mankind can read the Bible and can use it to better their lives. And that will not save them from hell, but it will make their lives better and the lives of the people around them better. And that's common grace. The special grace of God falls on those and only on those God has chosen to be his people. By the special grace of God, those sinners God has elected to be his children receive the Holy Spirit. They have nothing to give in return. They have not merited it. But God has decided that they should come into a wonderful new relationship with him. They read the Bible like everybody else, but the Holy Spirit helps them to recognize Jesus Christ as their Savior and to believe in him. By the special grace, the special grace of God is saving grace. It is God loving people who used to hate him. It is God pardoning their sins, God adopting them as his children, God entering into a new covenant with them. God writing his law on their hearts and giving them hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. That is, giving them the ability to love other people. This special grace of God comes to us through the man Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in our text. As sin reigned in death, grace reigns through 
righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The special grace of God is that he declares you righteous on account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The special grace of God is that Jesus paid the price for your sin and his saving work is accounted to you. The special grace of God is to give you hope of eternal life in God's kingdom because you belong to his son, Jesus Christ. And this special grace through Jesus Christ is infinitely large. The Apostle Paul says that it is abundant, that God is infinitely rich in mercy. And he speaks of the riches, the great riches of God's grace in the letter to, uh, to the Ephesians. And you know what? This is what gives us assurance. Because Paul, who was one of the worst sinners ever in history, who wanted to persecute Christians on account of their faith and kill them, Paul knew what he was talking about. And when he says the, the, that grace is abundant, what he means is it is enough to cover all these awful sins of my past. And in the same way, if you believe in Jesus, you don't need to worry that your sins are so great that God's grace is not large enough. No, it is exceedingly abundant. And it will cover your sins. As the Lord says in Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall be as white wool. The abundance of God's grace is truly amazing. That's why we sing amazing grace. There are many, many wonders in nature and in the universe that we can marvel at. But no one is greater than the wonder of the special grace of God. The wealth of God's special grace is fourfold. And we will deal with each of these four aspects separately in the weeks to come. In the book of Romans, they are first redemption through Jesus Christ by his death. God shows his love for us that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 3.24. Now, what is the most important word in the sentence? It is while. While you are still or you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And so that wipes out any idea of merit, right? It is not like, oh, you turned to God and therefore he sent his son and he died for you on the cross. No, forget it. It's not merit. While you were still an enemy of God, hating God, Christ died for you. Second, regeneration. Paul writes in Romans 6, therefore... We were buried with Christ through baptism into death. You remember when we baptize a person here in the basin, 
we put him underwater, and that signifies his burial. He's now dead to his old life. Therefore, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life and no longer be slaves to sin. By the special grace of God in Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus are new creatures. All things have passed away. All things have become new, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We are free to live as children of God. Number three, election. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. By the special grace of God, he has elected men and women to be his children before they ever did anything to merit this choice because God made that decision and that decision concerning you and me before the foundation of the world when nobody ever thought of you except God. And the fourth point, preservation. In Romans 8, Paul writes, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn of many. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified, which means bring to the glorious end of their lives. God sets his children on a path leading to his eternal kingdom, and every one of them will arrive there. There's no need to fear that you miss the goal of your life. His grace reigns because Jesus reigns over all who believe in him. And so if you believe in Jesus, you are called to live under grace. To live under grace, which means to let the special grace of God determine your life, your relationship with God, and your relationship with other people, your family, friends, neighbors, colleagues, certainly your brothers and sisters in the church. The Apostle Paul understood very well the temptation that comes with grace. And it is a temptation that has haunted churches for the past 2,000 years. What is it? It's the idea that, well, if God is gracious to me, if God forgives me my sins, I can do whatever I want. Right? I can kick my cat. I can rob a bank. I can shoot my neighbor. Doesn't matter. God forgives me. I can do what I want. Well, that's what we call cheap grace. It is treating the special grace of God with contempt and pride. 
And therefore, Paul writes in Romans 6, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. To live under grace is the supreme privilege of all children of God. It is a life of freedom, threefold freedoms. First, freedom from the hopelessness that comes from trying to earn eternal life and righteousness before God by your own doing. That's a hopeless thing because it's impossible. You can try to keep the law of God as perfectly as you wish. It will never be enough. That's what God tells us. Those who rely on the works of the law, they are under what? They are under a curse, Galatians 3. They go to hell. There is only one way to be righteous before God, and that is by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Second, life under grace is life in freedom from the bondage of sin. The children of God are still sinners in the sense that they do not as constantly and perfectly trust God in all that they do and say, not as much as God would like us to see. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the children of God are able to recognize and to oppose sin in their lives. They are no longer forced to give into bad habits and wicked intentions. They no longer live, as the Bible says it, in bondage or slavery to sin. They are free to recognize the needs of their fellow humans and do good to them. They are free to grow in their faith, becoming ever more like Jesus. And third, life under grace is freedom from bondage to fear. The children of God, Paul says in Romans 8, the children of God have received not a spirit of bondage to fear, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, knowing that they have been elected and saved. They look to the future with hope. They know that nothing can separate them from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And knowing this, they can go out into the world and do the good works for which they have been created by Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them, as we heard in the scripture lesson from Ephesians 2. Now, you want to realize what Paul is saying there. Before the foundation of the world, God already thought about the good works that you were made to do. Isn't that wonderful? You don't even have to imagine and figure out the good works. God has already done it for you. All you need to do is trust him and do them because God puts them right before you. <clears throat> Or as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light, the light of God's grace, shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the free and undeserved gift of grace. And we acknowledge, Father, we confess that it is difficult for us 
It is difficult for us to accept that your grace comes from above, that it is free and it is undeserved. But Father, because you have elected us to be your children, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts to, for giving us this truth and for giving us your grace and for looking at us and saying, although they do not deserve it, nevertheless, I will deal kindly with them. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What should separate me from your love? What should separate me from your love? Adonai.